The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines. Stocks across Asia hit six-month lows after the S&P 500 posts its worst week of 2019 as rising trade tensions between the U.S. and China send investors into safe havens like the yen, bonds and gold. The yuan slides to its lowest level in more than a decade, breaking past seven per dollar as China's central bank calls the sharp move normal while pledging to keep the currency stable. The Hang Seng slums as protesters seek to paralyze Hong Kong with a general strike, while Chief Executive Carrie Lam says the city is on the verge of a very dangerous situation. And the U.S. grapples with two mass shootings in less than 24 hours, with the combined death toll reaching 29, raising more fears about domestic terrorism in the United States. Well, a very warm welcome to Squawk Box this Monday morning. We are coming off of an extremely tumultuous end to the week last week where we saw global markets sell off after President Trump surprised the market with fresh tariffs proposed on Chinese imports. So as you can see here beside me, we saw more losses come for the Dow, the S&P and the Nasdaq on Friday. Uh, this, of course, follows some steep losses on Thursday where we saw the Dow reverse a 300 point gain to end nearly 300 points lower. So a clear shift in sentiment. Now on Friday, we saw tech lag all sectors extending its losing streak to five days. And here you can see the Nasdaq down about 1.3%. So underperforming the broader market for the week. We saw the S&P, the Dow and the Nasdaq all down more than 2% with the Nasdaq down nearly 4% for the week. Let's take a look at Asian markets and see how we're looking. We saw some steep losses come together on Friday in Asia and now more steep losses accumulating in the latest session. The Hang Seng, I want to draw your attention to, down 2.9% in overnight trade. Now this follows last week when the Hang Seng closed down more than 5% week to date. That was the worst week since February 2018. So this, the impact, the implications, the concerns around an escalation in U.S.-China trade tensions really weighing on investors around the globe. Now, in this risk-off sentiment, we have seen a strong bid for safe havens. Let's take a look at uh, some of the key safe haven assets and the kind of demand we've seen and the price moves we've seen in the wake of this sell-off in risk assets. Gold has been a huge beneficiary of this risk-off mode we've seen from investors. Now, this morning, uh, it's trading up about 0.8% above the 1450 handle. We saw a very strong day for gold on Friday, so the gains just keep on coming. Meanwhile, we are seeing a bit as well for the yen. Uh, And the big news overnight comes around the yuan, which we'll come to in just a minute. But uh, let's take a look at dollar crosses uh, before we come on to that. Last week, uh, at the end of the week, we saw weakness in the dollar, the dollar index losing about a third of a percentage point on Friday. Now this morning, we are seeing a little bit of stabilization in the sterling versus the dollar around that 121 mark. Euro dollar uh, trading slightly higher around 111. Uh, But let's go take a look at the Chinese currency. This is where the real news in the 
the currency markets has come overnight. So the onshore uh, USD versus the CNY is at 7.024. Now, in terms of this, the the stat around that, the yuan is that is beyond the key psychological seven per dollar level for the first time in more than a decade. So we are seeing the uh, PBOC allow the yuan to depreciate versus the dollar. Now, China's yuan fell below a key level this morning, as I just mentioned, and the country's central bank is blaming the new U.S. tariffs. Eunice Yoon has the latest developments. The Chinese yuan has weakened past the psychologically important seven mark, raising questions if policymakers here are purposely devaluing the currency as a way to offset President Trump's anticipated 10% tariffs on $300 billion worth of Chinese goods. In a statement on its website, the People's Bank of China explicitly linked the depreciation with President Trump's tariff threat, saying the losses were largely due to trade protectionism and tariffs on Chinese goods. A weaker yuan helps to make Chinese exports cheaper, and some manufacturers have been telling us that they've been worried that President Trump's tariffs could force them out of the U.S. market altogether. Companies that buy from America anticipate pain too, like Chinese conglomerate New Hope, which purchases U.S. soybeans. Of course, if they cannot reach a deal and decide to impose additional tariffs, and I believe both sides will do, it will for sure add to U.S. farmers' costs and force Chinese buyers to pay more. This is something we really don't want to see but have to be prepared for. China's central bank has expressed confidence that the yuan will remain stable. The danger, though, is that the weaker currency today could spark more capital outflows and potentially a backlash from the White House, which might interpret this move as Beijing weaponizing its currency in the trade war. Eunice Yoon, CNBC Business News, Beijing. Now, President Trump reportedly overruled objections from top advisors when he announced new tariffs on $300 billion worth of Chinese goods. That's according to the Wall Street Journal, citing people familiar with the matter. The newspaper reports that in a heated exchange, President Trump argued fresh tariffs would make Beijing comply with U.S. demands, while advisors believe they could hurt the economy and damage relationships with President Xi. Now, Carolyn and I are joined around the desk by two experts on uh, on China, Ginny Yan, chief China economist and managing director for ICBC Standard Bank and Duncan Wrigley, chief strategist, Everbright son, Hung Kai. Um, now, I just want to pick up on the, the reaction we've seen in the yuan overnight. And we just heard there from Eunice Yoon talking about the weaponization of the currency. Duncan, perhaps we could start with you. Would you consider this Beijing weaponizing the currency in reaction to trade war developments? Uh, not necessarily. So um, if we look at what happened last week, first of all, the Fed cut rates and indicated it would cut rates again if the trade war started to have an impact on the U.S. economy. So in a normal market rate, uh, floating rate exchange rate system, you would expect to see a currency move, right? You would expect to see the RMB depreciate. And in fact, previously, there were, there were estimates that the uh, fundamental rate of the RMB should be more around 7.3 after the impact of the previous rounds of tariffs. So PBOC has been holding a line before, and if anything, what it's, all it's done is allow that line to move a little bit. That's how I would see it. Yeah, they've wanted a stable currency. You need to come in on this because they don't want it to depreciate too much because as Eunice pointed out correctly in her report there, they don't want a lot of capital flowing outside of the country. So how do they manage this? Again, also without drawing the ire of President Trump, who may read this incorrectly. 
<laughs> I would tend to agree with Duncan on the front that this is not, in my view, a policy at all. Because if, first of all, they would have done it ages ago if, if this was a, really a defensive action. And, but more fundamentally, priority and macro priority is around domestic demand. So the seven is not going to help the domestic demand situation. Look at the PMIs, which have come weaker. And the key question there is how do you boost domestic demand? Um, same with the capital outflows. Capital outflows is a, has been a problem and a fear for a very long time. And the way to deal with that has been capital control. The currency doesn't really come into it. It's not a defensive play from PBOC on that front. So what do they do on the domestic front then? Do we get another credit impulse from the Chinese government? Do we get another big stimulus package? Absolutely not a big stimulus package. What we've seen so far is very measured moves. We've seen tax cuts, particularly uh, geared towards consumption, uh, and we'll continue to see that. No overreaction uh, and uh, nothing at all like what we saw on the back of financial crisis in particular because of a deleveraging campaign. And I stress again, deleveraging is important and continue to be very important um, to really test the credibility, accountability of the current government. And that will stay in place. Now, I think one thing to remember is that these tariffs are set to come in on September 1st, so we still have about a month before they actually come into effect. And Duncan, where do you think we stand? There's a month to go. Could we actually see them avert uh, the increased tariffs? Um, I think it's possible, but quite unlikely. You know, there isn't a, a formal face-to-face -face set of meetings scheduled until early September, so you could have uh, telephone talks. You know, the best thing, the, the most likely event that would actually get things started again would be a Trump-Xi phone call. Um, so it's possible, but I think it's unlikely. And one big reason why it's unlikely is it's just getting more difficult from the US side. Um, there is, you know, what kind of got this latest round of talks started again uh, was a G20 summit between Xi and Trump and this kind of informal quid pro quo agreement, uh, which wasn't put in paper. Uh, that China would buy more farm imports, uh, and in return, the US would start to ease up on some of the controls of the US technology uh, uh, supply to Huawei. Now, both sides have started to edge forward, but it's not been clear moves that allow the other side to say, okay, now you're keeping to your bargain. And I think that's one of the reasons, this kind of miscommunication um, and the difficulty of having this kind of implicit agreement um, being passed through. I think that's one of the key reasons why we saw the breakdown in talks last week and why it makes it very hard to, to see real progress before September. But what's the longer term game plan by the Chinese at this point, Jenny? Come in here because the question that I've seen being raised a couple times over the last few days in response to the terrorists is that the Chinese will simply wait it out. They'll wait it out till we get the U.S. elections in 2020, in November. That's a long time away. So do the Chinese have this sort of high pain threshold to actually wait it out? Can they afford to do that economically? I guess the key question is how long is this uh, game, if we're to talking about a game here. I think um, many saw it really as a sort of a year to year until after elections. But I think China sees it more as that this is a new normal. I mean, we have to live with the fact that US and China 
the two largest economies in the world will continue to have to live with each other. Mm. And obviously the short-term um, uh, tester is really the, the, the run-up to elections. But equally, in China, we've got the 70th anniversary of the PRC coming up, National Day, mm. and that's an important test for Chinese authorities too. Investors will see this as, you know, who's going to be the first to blink? Mm. And clearly, for Chinese authorities, they really just need to make sure that they concentrate on what's important at home. And that is, what do people want? They want to see better livelihood, um, increase in income, uh, you know, and those sort of domestic factors remain much priority for the authorities. How would you sort of rank the, the political pressure at home? I mean, we have President Trump, and as Carolyn mentioned there, we've got the 2020 election coming up, and obviously the Democrats riding President Trump's tail and their push for a hard stance on China. But at the, on the flip side, in China, President Xi also is facing political pressure. So who sort of has more of an impetus to come out as a winner here? Right, sure, that's a very interesting question. First of all, I think in China, we you know, know that uh, things are a little bit more subtle. It's not about in election campaigns. Um, so clearly what uh, President Xi wants to keep uh, at the moment, and this is a, a key uh, word at the moment in China, which is stability. Stability because um, it's not really in China's uh, favor or, or in their pressure to continue to boost the economy, for example, for some sort of result. The key is to make sure that the, the vested interests are pleased at home. And this is the key. And I think at the moment, it's very, very difficult to tell exactly what the key um, uh, uh, part, uh, you know, schools of thought are within the government. For decades now, we've seen a, a very clear, um, dedicated sort of uh, interest towards the uh, leader. And that, I think, is very, very different from the US situation at the moment. Duncan, does it make sense to even second guess what Donald Trump is going to do next? I mean, we're no political strategists here, but obviously on, on Thursday, this tariff decision happened within a split second, maybe. And no one was really prepared for that because we thought, you know, they're still trying to build on that truce. So does it make sense for us to speculate, hey, this is going to go on until, you know, the election in 2020? Well, I, th I think you need to have... Um Someone who's an expert in psychology, really, to try and anticipate what Trump's <laughs> next tweet is going to be. <laughs> which is a, yeah, a specialist field yeah. within psychology. <laughs> uh, because, I mean, if you look at the, uh, the reporting around what happened last week, it, it, you know, the, yes, there were his tweets, but then the next day, the official White House statement had slightly a contrary message. It said, China has committed to farm imports, whereas Trump said, China hasn't followed through on its promises. So it, it seems that even within the White House, there are different messages going on. Um, investors, unfortunately, have to take into account what Trump might tweet or yeah. do. I mean, that's the reality. And I think it does create inherently a, um, a higher sense of, of policy risk. Yeah, and uh, plenty yeah. of volatility for investors, as we saw last week. And that's something we'll talk about um, in the next couple of minutes. You guys are staying with us, Ginny and Duncan. In the meantime, Hong Kong grinds to halt amid a massive citywide strike after unrest stretches into the ninth consecutive weekend. And let's take a look at European opening calls. Of course, we've seen that weakness continue in Asia after a tumultuous week last week. And we are looking like we're in for a negative start to trade here in Europe as well. The DAX and the FTSE may have looking at triple digit losses at the open. A CNBC signature event. 
Request. CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Welcome back to the show. HSBC shares are lower in Hong Kong. That's after the CEO John Flint resigned after just 18 months on the job. Europe's biggest bank cited the need for a change at the top in the face of a, quote, challenging global environment. The lender's global commercial banking chief, Noel Quinn, will step in as interim chief executive. And that's as the bank announced another share buyback of up to $1 billion and a 16% rise in first half profit. Police and protesters have clashed for the ninth consecutive weekend in Hong Kong. Authorities used tear gas to disperse crowds of demonstrators in multiple locations, including the Causeway Bay High End Shopping District. That's as protesters switched tactics to launch a mass citywide strike, which has crippled rail and air links today. The Hang Seng has hit its lowest level since January, currently down by 2.9 percent. Chief Executive Carrie Lam has warned the ongoing unrest is reaching dangerous territory. The recent protests and marches have seen escalated violence, and these worrying acts have gone beyond the Fugitive Offenders Bill, particularly when I have already announced some time ago that the bill is dead. Such extensive disruptions in the name of certain demands or uncooperative movement have seriously undermined Hong Kong's law and order and are pushing our city, the city we all love and many of us helped to build, to the verge of a very dangerous situation. Well, we are still joined by Ginny Yan, Chief China Economist and Managing Director from ICBC Standard Bank, and Duncan Wrigley, Chief Strategist from Everbright Sun, Hung Kai. Uh, Ginny, you mentioned briefly before the break the China Services PMI that came out overnight. It's really sort of fallen into the background, given uh, everything that's going on with the yuan and with the, the trade picture. But what has this, this told you about the health of the Chinese economy? It's slowed. The services sector has slowed to uh, the its slowest pace in, in five months of growth in July. Uh, so so it seems like the economy is in a pretty difficult spot. Uh, what do you make of, of these numbers? Sure. I mean, the services uh, came out most recently, but actually it's a manufacturing PMI that has been most important for investors in particular. And uh, what it's showing is that uh, the numbers are getting weaker and we're going to get even more important data, I think, uh, on the 14th, which is uh, the real economy data on industrial output, all of the, et cetera. And I think that will continue to show the weakness of a domestic economy. And that's why I say, you know, really Really, we need to see probably clearer indications um, on fiscal support. I know more has been rolled out already, but I think fiscal compared to monetary has a slightly lagged effect. So on uh, uh, particularly the, the population, rural population, for example, they're not going to see the impact of these fiscal measures for a very long time. So key is to boost consum uh, the consumption, but also to stabilize confidence. And confidence not just in um, you know, industries investment, 
but confidence for uh, normal people to spend their money. Um, I think particularly with depreciation expectations and pressures, you're going to see tourists also thinking, well, how, how is this going to fare to me uh, with people with, uh, you know, for example, uh, uh, people, uh, overseas students, etc. That's also going to impact on them. So the uh, latest set of PMI data, the key data that made me a little bit uh, concerned is the employment sub-indices. And the labor market is a key tester. Earlier you asked me, how do you test the government, etc., in terms of what are sort of uh, the, the, the tester points for the government? And I think key is the labor market. If we see any signs of unemployment, if we see any signs of income growth is starting to slow, and they already are, disposable income is starting to slow, particularly uh, in cities and, and also in rural areas as well, and that will impact on confidence and sentiment in China. Duncan, you're, you're, you're nodding your head. So what does this mean for the uh, PBOC and the Chinese government? Because we heard from Ginny before, they're on this big deleveraging drive, and they don't mm. really want to steer away from that too much. They don't want to go back to the to the uh, you know burden of debt that we've seen for so many decades, for so many years in China. So I, this is a conundrum for, for the government. How do they stimulate the economy without adding too much debt and without inflating the property market too much? Well, I, I agree with Ginny. They're going to try to stimulate the economy via fiscal stimulus-led economy. And it, there won't be a substantial credit stimulus, but credit will be just supportive of. And, and so what we've seen over the last month, actually, is a new policy coming to the surface, much talked about policymakers, um, which is a, a sort of subset of infrastructure, if you like which is about renovating old urban communities and districts. Now, that may not sound very sexy, but the reality is that there's hundreds of millions of people living in these communities. And just you know, a small amount of spending in terms of upgrading their uh, infrastructure in these local areas or housing can add up to quite a lot in terms of stabilizing the economy. Um, and the other, the other big thing to watch out for is um, 5G. 5G is being rolled out, and uh, the commercial licenses to the uh, three or four big operators were granted earlier than expected. And we see that as a signal that, uh, that China's going to try to accelerate the rollout of 3G, uh, 5G. Sorry. Mm. There, there are risks in terms of um, uh, accessing US technology for certain parts of 5G. Um, but I think in, in the short term, uh, Huawei and so forth have sufficient stockpiles. Um, and so what, that is going to be another area we're going to see in terms of, of supporting the economy, you know, different parts of infrastructure. And that means um, supporting the economy without trying to uh, spike up another property um, boom, mm. you know, which, as you say, has financial risks. Duncan, before we let you go, mm. your title says you're a chief strategist. Tell us what we should do with our portfolios today after a bruising week like last week. Should we rip it up? Should we rip up the plan and, I don't know, add more defensives, add more bond proxies to the mix? Or do we stay the course? Do we stay with equities because we think, hey, this environment is still very constructive. Yes, there was mm. a hiccup along the, along the road, but this is still a very, very good environment. What do you think? Well, I think in this, this environment right now, today, um, it would be foolhardy to go into risky assets. I think there's going to be a little bit more of a market adjustment and probably an over-adjustment in response to the, 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 the trade action and the yuan. Um, once it becomes clearer that we're kind of back to one of these um, 
uh, waiting periods and people don't quite know what's going on and also that the PBOC isn't going to allow a strong depreciation of the UN but rather you know allow market forces a little bit more room but basically keep things stable you know I think once uh, expectations in the market start to form around that um, then it will become more apparent that some of the sell-offs over the next few days are probably overdone. Jenny, you talk about the, the need for fiscal stimulus to try to address some of the weakness that we've seen in the Chinese economy. How effective do you think that stimulus could be at this point in the cycle? And you know, given how much stimulus we've seen from them in the past, this time around, can they actually stimulate their way out of a downturn? Yeah, I think a, a soft landing is what they're trying to re, uh, create here. And the fiscal policy rather than monetary uh, policy push is clearly the way to go about it because you want um, a lagged effect. However, it's going to have a long term implication. However, I think the key is also China's markets are opening up and continue to open up. I mean, we talked a little bit about capital controls, but we didn't talk about the fact that, for example, China's bond market is still the second largest now in the world. But two <laughs> percent are foreign investors and investors out there will know that they they already have a China strategy but I think this year and heading into next year with indices inclusion bond uh, of major bonding indexes will continue to see more uh, allocation into China um, either passively or actively but also emerging markets is key now we talk about China's domestic economy but China's impact via Belt and Road Initiative etc on other emerging economies particularly in this environment, it's going to be very, very interesting to watch. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.